0: Friends, would you open in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to continue in our study of 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading a longer section from verse 11. Hear now God's word. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, that the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel Was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take this word and you would plant it in our hearts. I pray that you would continue to make us a people that is heavy on the already and hopeful in the not yet. You can do that by the power of your spirit and in the name of your resurrected son, Jesus, we ask. Amen. You know, we studied last week the first half of this chapter, of 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah gives this beautiful song, this prayer before the Lord, and she proclaims that the God we serve is a God of role reversals. He takes those who are high and wicked and he brings them low, and he takes those who are low whom he saves and he brings them high. He takes the hungry and makes them full, but he takes the full and makes them hungry. He is a God who reverses our roles. And we had to ask the question last week, when we approached a passage like this and we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, are we talking about something that is going to happen in this life before us, or are we just talking about something that happens in the life to come? Isn't that a critical question? Does God intervene in the world and do some of these things now, create these role reversals now, or are we just speaking about judgment day when he's ultimately going to do this? We kind of joke about this even now, this relationship between God and the physical order. You've heard people joke, maybe you've invited somebody to church and they've said to you, no, 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 I could never do that. If I set foot inside a church, God would strike me with lightning. Have you heard somebody joke about that? We're half joking because it's not entirely clear Does he do that? Would he do something like that? I have this um, distinct memory from high school, where many of you know my testimony. I used and abused drugs and alcohol for a long time until I got saved at 18, actually June 16th, 15 years ago from this month. Um, But I remember sitting around with a group of guys, and we had a bunch of weed to smoke, but we had no papers, no pipe, no blunts, nothing to smoke it with, and So we're kind of scrounging around, and the kids whose house we're at grabs a Gideon Bible, and he says, look, man, the pages of a Bible are nice and thin. This is going to work perfectly to smoke with. And this room full of guys who has nothing to do with Jesus and don't want anything to do with Jesus are looking at each other, and we're like, this just got heavy quick. I don't know if we can take a page out of the Bible and smoke with that. And the kid says to us, no, 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 we're not going to use like the scripture part. We're going to use the table of contents. And then it's okay. (laughs) And to a man, each of us were like, I'm out, man. I'm not doing that. That sounds crazy. Isn't that fascinating? There's mass confusion in the church and outside of the church. What's God's relationship to the present order? Does he break into a room full of pot smokers and judge us here and now? Or is he only waiting until the end of time to do that? That's a really important question for anybody to ask as it relates to judgment and to blessing, what's God's relationship with the present order? Well, we argued last week that biblically, we must understand spiritual truths and physical realities in this way. Spiritual truths are already, but not yet, physical realities. We live right now in this tension of a kingdom that's already not yet. It's a kingdom that God is bringing that is already here, but it has not yet been fully realized among us, And so there's this dynamic tension. Sometimes, even now, God breaks into this present order and he does judge the wicked. He topples rulers and powers and principalities and those who were hungry. He brings low and makes them to be without him. And also in this present order, he breaks in and blesses those who know him. He heals and he restores, he lifts up, he binds, he reconciles, he does those things. But whatever little ways we see that in our life now, a judgment here, a blessing here, all of that is just a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the kingdom as it will really be when Jesus returns and he sets the world to rights. Whatever we see now in this present order, we only see in part What one day you and I will see fully realized, the perfect and pristine and awesome judgment and reward of God in that final day. Well, our passage today that I just read for us exposes this idea of living in the world of the already and the not yet because we leave this mountaintop of Hannah's song and her prayer about the goodness of God working in the world and we enter the valley of the shadow of death When we walk in this season with Israel, and we're going to see these two points, the already and the not yet as it pertains to Israel and as it it pertains to us. And so I want to start with the not yet. Now you'll remember that um, chronologically, when we pick up 1 Samuel, this is happening at the same time as the book of Judges, which, which some of you are familiar with. And so the Nazarite Samuel is actually born at the same time as the Nazarite Samson. Those are contemporaries. They're both under the oppression of the Philistines. And if you know the book of Judges, you know this is a brutal time in Israel's history of every man doing what was right in his own eyes. Well, that becomes all the more awful in First Samuel because the first real mention of ugly and offensive sin, it doesn't happen out there among the Philistines. It doesn't happen among some vulgar nation that doesn't know the one true God. It happens among the people of Israel who just received the Ten Commandments from God. It happens not just among the people of Israel, but in the tabernacle, where of any place in Israel, this ought to be the place where the one true God is worshipped. But in verse 12, we're introduced to two awful characters, the sons of Eli, the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, and they're said to be worthless men who don't know the Lord. In other words, they know him, but they don't know him. They represent him, but they've never met him. They work in his house, but they have never dwelt there and spent time with the living God. That's so important for us to see because I think there are many of us today who have, have maybe walked away from the church because of abuses we've seen, or we're hanging on by just a thread of cynicism, And 1 Samuel 2 reminds us that not every man behind a pulpit is a preacher, and not every building that has a sign on it contains the people of God and the church. This abuse happens within the very walls of a place that calls itself a place of worship. Well, this scene begins to unfold for us of what's actually happening here. And before we can understand how Hophni and Phinehas are abusing the system, it's important to understand what should happen. What should a worshiper expect when they go to Shiloh and go to the tabernacle and make a peace offering? Well, ideally, this is what would happen. You would gather your family, as we saw Elkanah do in the last chapter, and you would go to Shiloh. This is where the tent, God's tabernacle, was and where his presence was most fully felt, and you would bring an animal to sacrifice. You would burn or boil that animal before the Lord, and all the fat would burn off of it. And that became this pleasing aroma to the Lord. This would be an act of worship to God as that aroma of the fat would burn off. Once that's done, the worshiper would take the breast of the animal and the right leg from the animal and they would deliver those to the priests and the Levites. This was a way to serve and to care for the very men and women who were providing for the entire tabernacle. You would give that to them and then the remainder of the animal, you would have a party with it. You would have a feast. You would set a table and you and your family and your neighbors and particularly those in your midst who couldn't pay you back, those who were too poor to have this feast themselves, all of you would gather around this table and you would have a wonderful feast and this became a powerful reminder that God is a God who dwells among us. He's a God who loves us and fellowships with us. You can literally sit down to a table spread and you can enjoy his presence and his love. And not only that, but every single person is welcome to that table, whether you can afford to be there or not. What a fantastic offering and a feast to make before the Lord and to enjoy with fellow worshipers. Well, Hophni and Phineas, they see this and they see the advantage they can take of this. And in verse 13, we learn that what they start to do is so commonplace that they call it a custom. When a worshiper comes and brings that animal, they send one of their servants, one of their henchmen, to go and take the meat by force. They want to take it before it's boiled so the fat hasn't burned off. And they want to take whatever they can grab. And so, in essence, they're robbing two sets of people. They're robbing... God himself, because the worshiper doesn't get to make an offering for the fat to go up as a pleasing aroma, and they're robbing the worshiper himself because they're taking more meat than is allotted for them, and they're going to have a very skimpy peace offering feast with their neighbors. They're doing this in both directions. And if that's not bad enough, the sin that they are doing there. We learn in verse 22 that Hophni and Phineas actually prey on the women who serve in the tabernacle. There's women there who are serving who do much of the work of the Levites and the place where they ought to feel most safe is the place where these men are abusing power and they're preying upon these women. In verse 14, there's a reference to a thrusting fork into the pot of meat to steal it. And in verse 22, there's this awful image of these men forcing themselves on these women. I don't mean to be crass at all when I say that there's this very base, ugly, imaginative connection between the two of these things. The Bible is not naive, A lifestyle of crude selfishness, of responding to every bodily impulse, can't help but play itself out in a dysfunctional sexuality, in praying and being preyed upon. This is the point in the story where any sane person would cry out to God, what are you doing? What is happening here? Why are you allowing these priests to roam free? Why do we live in a world where someone can walk into a Bible study and shoot at will? Why is racism eating our country alive? Why does ISIS roam free? Where is your justice? Where is your kingdom? What are you doing in these moments where people suffer? God, where are you and what is the point? If you're feeling that when you read this story, if you're feeling that when you wake up on Monday morning, and I hope you do, you are feeling the tension of the not yet. The kingdom of God is at hand, but it is not yet here. God will break his adversaries to pieces, but he has not yet broken every one of them down. God will reward and wrap into his arms and protect the feet of the faithful, but it does not yet feel like that because I suffer in this life. The kingdom of God is at hand, but it is not yet here, and we feel in the groaning in our lives and in our families and all creation that the world is not yet as it should be. We suffer, and we cry out to God in our suffering. I think every single one of us, whether you're a believer or not, understands the not yet. We understand that the world is not as it should be, that we as humans don't live as we ought to live, that this is not the place that I would want to live forever. We get the not yet. I think where we wrestle is the already. Convince me that something is already underway. I understand the kingdom of God is not yet here. Convince me that it is truly, as Jesus said, at hand, And that's why I think this passage is so powerful. If you would humor me for a moment and hold your Bible at arm's length, I want you to to visibly see the structure of what's happening here. In verse 11, Samuel ministers to the Lord. And then you have this giant paragraph of the wickedness that prevails. And then in verse 18, Samuel ministers to the Lord And then you have a paragraph of more wickedness. And then in verse 26, Samuel ministers to the Lord. And then another paragraph of more wickedness. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, that we didn't read, Samuel ministers before the Lord. And then there's this long section of the sins of the sons. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, guess what? Samuel ministers before the Lord. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter once quipped that what the Hebrew language lacks in vocabulary range, it makes up for in repetition. Again and again and again and again, we hear this cacophony of wickedness that shouts so loud it threatens to drain everything else out. All I can see is the abuse in the tabernacle and what's happening there, and yet slowly, But surely and repetitively, the kingdom of God grows. One little boy, buried in a tabernacle, continues to minister before the Lord. Is that not what Jesus said would be the nature of his kingdom? Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests in its branches. This is how the kingdom grows. Small, slow, almost imperceptible, but this is the kingdom of God at hand. We are a church body that subscribes to this theology, the theology of the already and the not yet, that God's kingdom, as Jesus said, is already here and it is pressing in, but it is not yet fully realized. But frankly, what we learned in the letters of Timothy and Titus, good theology is not good enough. This theology must root itself in our hearts and our minds and play out in action because we want to be a church that is heavy on the already and hopeful in the not yet. That's the kind of community that we want to see God build here in our midst. And so let's talk very specifically about what that means. What does it mean to be a group of people that is heavy on the already? Well, I think like little Samuel sporting an ephod and running errands in the tabernacle in Shiloh, the already of the kingdom of God, it just doesn't look like much. You look at your own life to find evidence of the kingdom of God. You look at our city to find evidence of the kingdom of God. You look at this church to find evidence of what God is doing, and it can be hard to see at times. I recently heard a a Navy SEAL captain speak and he described a mission that he was on with one of his snipers and he said that they were looking at a hill on a horizon and he was scanning back and forth with his binoculars and he couldn't see anything. He couldn't see any enemy movement until his sniper said to him, look man, you're not going to see anything that way. You've got to pick a point on the hill and stare at it for a long time in a manageable bite-sized piece and then you'll start to see things. Jesus is building his kingdom right under our noses, and the call of the Christian is to slow down and stop and pick a manageable piece and see what God is really doing in our midst. We're going to see this in big flashes in ministry, but we're also going to see this in the mundane. Of course, we see this in ministry. This is fantastic to talk about the Sibleys and what God is doing in Orangeburg. I don't know if you heard the full of this, but a white pastor is going to plant a multicultural church in a black community and a black pastor comes alongside of him and says, that's a good idea. That is crazy to me. And yet that is a signpost of the kingdom of God. When you hear about our pearls ministry of women going out on the weekends and sharing the love of Christ with women who need to hear it, that's fantastic. When you hear about Ezekiel and Providence and people going outside of their comfort zone to meet a neighbor and share the gospel with them, these are signposts of the kingdom. God is at work growing this thing in our midst. Last weekend, I had, after the Sunday service, back-to-back conversations with two of our officers. One was an elder and he's befriended somebody who went from panhandling on the streets to now having a full-time job and living in a stable place. And the elder was asking, how do we continue body and soul to see this man look more and more like Jesus? And I had a deacon approach me and say, I'm doing this ministry and I run the security detail for it. Can I bring a gun to protect the women who are doing this ministry? Now, regardless of how you would answer Deacons carrying guns in the church. Don't you just want to kiss these two guys? Not not because these ministries are flashy and cool and amazing, but because you are watching the hands and the feet of Jesus, seeing the kingdom of God grow in our church and our city. That's fantastic. We're going to see the kingdom of God grow in ministry, but are we going to see the kingdom of God grow in the mundane? Because there are so much more places, the majority of our lives are lived in the mundane. The serving of one person to another. The confessing of sins one person to another. The saying no in our private and personal life to a sin that so easily entangles. The faith to believe that Jesus' love is more for me today than I ever understood it in the past. These are the small moments in which the kingdom of God is growing. I love showing up here on a Sunday morning and watching Jim, who is not paid, every single Sunday morning set up the chairs. I love watching our musicians who tune their instruments, also unpaid, prepare to lead us in worship. I love watching people run downstairs and vacuum and clean our children's spaces to minister to our kids during this hour. I love watching those who come and serve food to our body. I love watching those who, even though they feel like an introvert and very uncomfortable, reaching out and meeting somebody they don't know all of that just looks so plain. If you were to blitz through this room and see all of that, you might miss the fact that Jesus is growing his kingdom. That if we as a people can do this on Sunday morning shortly, we can do this on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and where we go to play, we can see the pervasive growth of this mustard seed, the kingdom of God in our midst. That. Friends, that is a church that is heavy on the already. We're heavy on the things that Jesus is doing here and now. But what does it mean, as we're doing that, to be hopeful in the not yet? Um, In the last couple of weeks, I think I'm training for a marathon, and I've been working for a long, long time on getting that into a sermon illustration. It's not easy, but, you know, you want to work it in. No pastor is going to start a sermon illustration with, I sat down to eat a sleeve of thin mints, which I've done, but that's not the illustration. I'm training for a marathon. And so Mondays are the big run days. That's when you put up the the bulk of the miles. And I was doing that this past Monday, but I got a late start, which meant I had to leave around 9 o'clock in the morning, where in South Carolina it's about 120 degrees by 9 o'clock. Get out, I start pounding out the miles, and about an hour into the run, I begin to hallucinate like my stomach is queasy, my head is just not where it should be, and I I start to see like mirages of oases up ahead. I I don't feel good at all. And I'm on the riverfront park, and I'm like six miles from my office, and this is my biggest fear, running on the riverfront park where it's just me and a bunch of stay-at-home moms with babies in strollers. And I always like imagine what it's like to twist my ankle and have to approach one of them and be like, I'm seriously not hitting on you could you take your baby out of the stroller and put me in and, and like wheel me to safety? But fortunately, uh, I had my phone because I was tracking my distance and pace, and so I was able to make the call of shame. I dial Julie, and I say, I'm so sorry, babe. Could you come and pick me up? I'm at the Riverfront Park. I'm, I'm far away from my office. I can't get there. And Julie says, you know, I'd love to just break my day and pack up all four kids and come and get you. That sounds great. Um, so she comes. But when I hung up the phone, something happened to me. I felt this new energy awaken within me. The idea that Julie was coming, it it just put this spring in my step, and I just took off running and pounded out a couple more miles because a couple of things were at work in my mind. First of all, of all the ways I want my kids to remember their father, one of them is not curled in the fetal position on the riverfront park sobbing. I want my kids to see me running. I want to be full stride when that van pulls up and it to be like a coincidence. Like, oh, I didn't know you were, well, let me just get a ride back to the office. But the other reason I got a spring in my step is because I knew help was on the way. I could run, I could pour out the last bit of my energy on that run because I knew very soon, right around the bend, this air-conditioned, beautiful bubble called the Honda Odyssey was going to swoop me away to safety. And I knew that I was going to be okay. Friends, what sustains a church community in the already is the not yet. What sustains us here and now to do these small pieces of the kingdom is the not yet, that whatever we see, whatever we taste, whatever we do is only a foreshadow of the kingdom that is coming. Nothing could have been more disheartening for young Samuel than to do chores in a tabernacle that was deliberately pushing people away from worship of the one true God, unless Samuel really believed his mother's prayer that God is coming to put this world to rights. This reality that's more sure than the ground beneath our feet, the sky above our heads, that Jesus himself is going to roll back the sky like a scroll and appear before us at an hour we don't know. And when he does that, he is going to put the world to rights and make everything new. That reality is our hope in the not yet and it is a spring in our step for the already. Let me pray for us. Jesus, may it be, May it be so. May we be a people who set about doing the work of your kingdom because that's the already. The kingdom of God is at hand. But may we also be a people that is hopeful and doggedly sure of the promise that you are coming to set this world to rights. Let us believe that and live in light of that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.